I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. The world is full of real, tangible objects, real emotions, real actions, things that are true. But humans, being philosophical creatures, have chosen to give value to representative objects, to things that are not real, to ideas that are based on nothing. Time is real. Our Earth's orbit around the sun and the 23 and a half degree tilt gives us seasons and natural progressions. Also, the spin of the Earth on its axis gives us dawn, midday, evening, night, and dawn once again. If those aren't enough time clues, the moon's orbit west to east, although it appears east to west, gives us lunar time, lunar progressions. And the stars in the sky at night wheel a clock east to west with a change in 3 minutes and 56 seconds per day to keep a celestial calendar. All of that is real. Natural time. But the division of time is arbitrary. It's a construct. Choosing to divide a day into 24 hours is a choice. We could have divided our day into 12 hours. We could have divided our day into 17 hours. We could have divided our day into three hours. Completely arbitrary. The division of time is arbitrary. But for me, time doesn't mean much anything. And I'm not talking about real time or arbitrary time. I'm talking about the idea Since my brain injury, I don't remember anything categorized by time. Meaning, for me, something could be four years ago, but it also could be seven months ago, and I have no idea which one. A while back, I saw a turkey while I was driving home with my daughter. Later, I said, remember a few weeks ago when we saw that turkey when we were driving home? And she said, Dad, that was yesterday. So time has become even more malleable in my brain-injured brain. So either a few weeks ago or two years ago, one or the other, I was biking from South Eugene home, and I came over the Ferry Street Bridge. And as I was biking over Ferry Street Bridge, I saw a person in front of me in the bike lane near the bridge railing over the river And the bridge railing stands about 40 feet above the water. And this person was kind of hunched down. And as I biked up closer, I saw it was a woman. And then as I biked past this woman, I saw that she was fumbling with a knot on a rope that was tied to a bridge railing piece. And at the other end of the rope was a noose. And I pedaled past her. And I got maybe five or six pedals past her when I started to slow down. And I thought, that was a noose. 
That was the news on a rope. That was the real news on a real rope on a bridge. And I stopped my bike and I turned around and I pedaled back to this woman. And uh, to say that the situation was awkward is a significant understatement. I didn't really know what to say. What do you say when someone's tying a rope with a noose to a bridge railing? So I just said, are you okay? And she said, uh, this, this isn't my rope. And I was like, okay, are you okay? And she said, I'm, I'm just gonna untie it. I'm untying it right now. And I said, okay. But do you want to talk about anything? And she said, I'm just going to, I'm going to untie this rope right now. And she untied the rope from the bridge railing. And then she kind of piled the rope up into a pile. And then she took off her backpack and unzipped her backpack. And she stuffed the noose with the rope into her backpack. And she kind of shoved it down in there and she zipped it closed. She said, it's not my rope. And I was like, okay, do you? do you want to talk about anything? She said, no, no, I'm going to go now. I'm going to go. And then she stood up, and behind one of the girders, there was her bike, which I hadn't noticed until then. She grabbed her bike. She spun it around facing north, and she had her backpack on with her noose and her rope in it, and she started to pedal forward, and I started to pedal forward, and we just biked together for a little while. And then she said, thank you. And then she kept biking north. And she biked a little faster than me. And I realized that she kind of wanted to be alone. So I let her bike ahead. And I just followed her for the next couple of miles. And then after a couple of miles, I turned off right. And I went home. And ever since that moment, I've thought about it. And I've thought about that saying that we always say that People are so different. And we differentiate between friends and good friends, or good friends and friends, or friends and acquaintances, or a little more than acquaintance, or acquaintances versus strangers, strangers versus friends, strangers versus family. People are so different. But I think about that moment and I think, are we so different? We're all are we just all struggling through a little bit? And all of us at some point are going to get to our noose on the bridge moment. And hopefully in that moment, somebody else is going to be there. Okay, here's something else I think about kind of often. The idea of drug users, drug addicts, and drug dealers. So let's take marijuana, for example. Marijuana happens to be legalized in my state, Oregon. Completely legalized. And the way legalization goes, it's actually kind of on a spectrum. There's fully illegal, there's decriminalized, there's medical, there's medical and decriminalized, and then there's legalized. So there's five levels to this, right? So in the state of Oregon, if an adult over the age of 21 smokes marijuana in public, even, nothing happens. I've seen it many times. I've seen people smoking marijuana, and I've seen police officers across the street. 
nothing happens. All right? But if you just go next door in Idaho, Idaho is on the far side of that spectrum where marijuana is fully illegal, meaning you can get jail or prison time for possession or distribution of marijuana. So there's a big spectrum there. So someone who uses marijuana in Oregon is not considered a drug addict for sure. Someone who legally sells marijuana is not considered a drug dealer. But in Idaho, somebody who sells marijuana is a drug dealer. And somebody who uses marijuana is a drug user. And in some cases, some courts would call them drug addicts. Same drug, same Northwest, same country, different attitudes, therefore a construct, different laws, therefore a construct, right? But let's go a little further. If someone were to use an illicit drug daily, they'd be considered a drug user or a drug addict, and anybody who gave them that drug would be a drug dealer, right? But if my neighbor gets up, and this is what she tells me, if my neighbor gets up in the morning and she generally takes three ibuprofen to start each day, and then a little while later in the morning after her breakfast, she takes Zoloft. And then a little while later, she takes Adderall. She drinks coffee. Then in the afternoon, she drinks a glass of wine with lunch. And then a second glass of wine. And then maybe a third glass of wine with dinner. And then at night, she takes Ambien to go to sleep. We're talking about somebody who's used many, many drugs in one day. But is that person a drug user? Or is that person just a citizen of the United States? And is the pharmaceutical rep that sells those drugs, is that person a drug dealer? Or is that person somebody who just sells drugs for their job, which is totally different from a drug dealer? But if I make it personal, instead of judging my neighbor, if I judge myself, and if I say, well, if someone uses drugs, they're a drug user. If someone deals drugs or makes money off of drugs, they're a drug dealer. But what about me? What if I take butalbital or sumatriptan for my headaches? What if I take amitriptyline to go to sleep? What if I've taken topiramate or topomax for my seizures? If I use all of these, and if I use ibuprofen, and if I use Tylenol, and if I use anything else, am I a drug user? Am I a drug abuser? Am I a drug addict? Is the pharmacist that gives me these drugs a drug dealer? Hmm. I don't know. The next construct is a well-traveled country. That's a metaphor, which is also a construct. So you've heard this one before. But diamonds aren't rare. They're just geographically limited. And if a company or a nation or a series of companies, but let's just say if a company, and we'll just make up a completely theoretical name here, named De Beers. So if the De Beers company owned the geographical location or the rights to a geographical location to mine diamonds 
then it could get real humans to pull real things out of the earth, true objects. The problem is that although diamonds are not rare, they can be valued if they're limited. So if we're considering supply and demand, and if a company, and I'm just like making up a name of a company here, De Beers, were to limit the distribution and release of diamonds, then diamonds could then become worth a lot of money. And if a company, and I'm just making up a name here, De Beers, were to make an ad campaign in the early 20th century, uh, making it clear that men in particularly Western countries need to buy certain size diamonds worth a certain amount of money to propose to women to signal that they are then engaged to these women, then uh, these diamonds could be worth more money. And if a company, and I'll just make up a name here, De Beers, were to say that you need to spend one month salary or two months salary or three months salary on that engagement diamond and that there is a standard for this, it would be a construct because diamonds are actually not rare and therefore they're not really worth anything. But they are worth anything or they're worth something or they're worth a lot because they're worth money. Right? So in that way, they're like gold, which definitely isn't a construct because gold is just a heavy, shiny, malleable metal. It doesn't mean anything to anybody except that it does because humans have given it an incredible amount of value. Similar to silver, which is also a heavy, shiny, malleable metal, which humans have just decided to value. So we're looking at some constructs here. Um, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of silver and gold and diamonds everywhere. But, you know, uh, they're worth a lot because we've decided that they're worth a lot. And when I say worth a lot, what I mean is money. And money is representative. So money is a construct, but money represents real silver, or it used to. There were silver certificates. Uh, there was a silver standard. And so you could buy silver certificates that were paper, that were representative objects of silver, which is a construct as a valuable item. The silver standard ended. Then there was the gold standard. Uh, so you could have paper that represented gold, which was a construct of something valuable, except that the gold standard ended. So if the gold standard ends, then money is a representative object that represents no physical object. Hmm. That feels like a construct. So now money's a construct, but don't worry, because it's not worth anything real. The biologist E.O. Wilson taught at Harvard University after teaching at the University of Alabama and Duke. And he spent decades watching, studying, researching, writing about, and lecturing about ants. Just ants. He spent an entire career focused on ants. He retired from Harvard University in 1996, but he's still alive. He's 91 years old, and he's the preeminent ant expert in the entire world. And he discovered and proved some incredible things 
The biggest idea is that humans and ants are interrelated. They're symbiotic in nature. Not parasitic at all, but symbiotic. And the biggest proof of this is the collected weight theory that E.O. Wilson proved during his career. And that is that if you weigh all 7.5 billion people on the planet, if you get all of our collective weight, it will exactly equal the collective weight of all ants on Earth. And back when he was a young scientist, this was true when the world's population was 6 billion. So as we rise in our eminence, as our collective weight rises, so does the collective weight of ants. As we gain power on this earth, so do ants. And then there are weird little things that he proved, like ants and humans are the only two animals on earth, ants and humans, the only two animals that have suicide bombers. Humans, sometimes for strange ideological reasons, will go into a public space and blow themselves up. And ants, sometimes, for their own strange reasons, will go into a public ant space and blow themselves up. Humans colonize. Ants colonize. All of, all of these things that he proved, E.O. Wilson, that he proved during his career, started with observations of single anthills. And if you observe a single anthill all day, or if you're not patient enough to do it all day, or <coughs> for 60 years, uh, like E.O. Wilson, you'll notice a lot of interesting things. You'll notice how the ants work together. You'll notice when the ants disagree. You'll notice that ants have real actions. They have real emotions. They have real relationships. They have antagonists. They're productive. They explore. They create shelter. They create young. They eat. They drink. They plan for the future. They're amazing. And they're very human-like. And then if you think about ants and you think about humans and you realize that ants and humans are really sort of just the same thing, even if you don't like to think of it like that, we are. We're perfectly symbiotic. It's weird to think that humans make such distinctions between themselves and other humans. For example, it's very, very strange that humans make political distinctions. If you were to watch an anthill and think, well, those red ants over there with the little tiny dots of black on their backs, those are Republican ants. And these little ants over here, they're also red. They also have tiny black dots on their backs. They're Democrats. And, and then these over here, these red ants with little black dots on their back, they're libertarians. And these are Green Party and these are Tea Party ants. It's pretty stupid to think how we distinguish ourselves politically. Yeah, we think we're really advanced. And then it's also interesting to think how we distinguish between young and old. And we even give attributes to young and old that way. For example, 
We often say, at least in my culture, that with age comes wisdom. So older people are thought of as wiser. And that's certainly true. I've been blessed by some really, really wise older people in my life. But I also have heard the most horrifically sexist statements from people older than me. I've heard the worst racist statements from people older than me. I've heard the worst classist statements from people older than me. I know a lot of people older than me who read texts that aren't supposed to be literal, literally. And I was thinking, are older people wiser? I mean, maybe. If they're autodidacts, if they believe in continually self-educating, then they have so many more years to become more educated and the breadth of their knowledge, the depth of their knowledge could be so vast. So maybe. But if they're older people that believe that you're educated when you're young and your education stops when you're 18 or your education stops when you're 22 and then for the rest of your life you just tell people how it is and then you just become more hardened in your opinions and your bitterness, then maybe wiser people are not older people, or maybe older people are not wiser. Hmm. And I don't see that in ants. It doesn't seem to be true that when I watch anthills, that they venerate older ants or younger ants. But in my ant life, my own ant life, as a teacher of high school ants, I've learned so many things from younger ants. Ants have taught me how to empathize better. Ants have taught me how to be flexible in my opinions. Ants have taught me how to continually have fun. My young ants educate me every single year. I learn new things from my young ants all the time. So maybe the key is not to become an older ant, but maybe for me the key is to spend more time around younger ants. It is October 2020, one of the strangest years of my life. A year full of concrete and real difficult things, but also a year full of constructs. And one construct stands out above all right now as we're in election cycle. And this is a theory propagated, unfortunately, only by older people. I have never heard someone younger than me say this construct and look me in the eye and say it as if it's true. Yet I've had many, many elder people in my life voice this construct. And it is, Donald Trump is an outsider. I don't even know what to do with that statement. The idea that Donald Trump is an outsider is such an absurd construct. Um, I feel overwhelmed when I hear that. The idea that a white male politician is an outsider is absurd. The idea that a white male billionaire, Forbes 
valuated Trump at $2.5 billion this year, which is also a construct, a human having a value. But a white male billionaire politician who's been president of the United States for four years is not an outsider. All of that says not an outsider. A person who was given $9 million from his father at the start of adulthood. $9 million from his father to start his adult life and was given all of his father's connections to start his career. That person is an insider. By every definition, an insider. Has been his entire life. But if we go further, uh, Biden, Biden's not an outsider. He's been an elected politician for four decades in Washington, D.C. Biden's not an outsider. He's also a wealthy white male. Pence, that, that's not an outsider. He's a wealthy, white, rich male. Not an outsider. So if you truly are going to vote based on insider and outsider in this election, and you can vote any way you want, but if you're going to vote on that standard, insider or outsider, then you have to vote Harris. It's clear. We've never had a female vice president, never come close. We've never had a vice president of color. Not close. If you want to vote on insiders and outsiders, then you have to vote Biden-Harris. If you want to vote on something else, that's fine. But don't vote on a construct that's not even true. If you vote for Trump because he's an outsider, then you just simply don't understand the difference between insider and outsider. If you want to understand a true insider versus a true outsider... And you would look at somebody like Trump, who got $9 million from his father. And then you would look at somebody, say, an immigrant from Bangladesh who lives in Gallup, New Mexico, who doesn't speak English and works under the table cleaning houses. That's an outsider. Okay? It's certainly not a billionaire, white, elderly male. Let's start telling the truth. Sometimes, like with the last segment, I get so focused on the idiocy of our constructs that I get angry or worse. I get depressed. And then I end up writing a poem like this. This poem is titled, Or the Death of Jim Loney. The year takes a swift turn into darkness, and there's no way to keep my head up. Dear God, let the light shine on my face. In this great series of disappointments, collected pharmaceutical brand notepads, refrigerator magnets, credit card offers, Rotten pumpkins left over from Halloween, scattered decks of junk mail in the kitchen, mismatched silverware, 
unpaid bills. My cat huddles over a pile of rat entrails on the porch, the only remains of something that lived just an hour before. But now no fur to be found, no head or tail, no teeth or claws. In this symbolic narrative that is my real life, am I the rat or the junk mail? The mismatched silverware or the unpaid bills? Is it so difficult to imagine all of the inadequacies I can deliver? Is it so difficult to understand that I will never be everything you want me to be? I open a bag of flour from the cabinet and I discover Mediterranean flower moths, their wings ticking the bag, larvae sticky, the moist, almost sweet smell of decay. But then I think of how silly our little human world is and how ridiculous it is that we have political and religious and monetary and familial distinctions between one human and the next. And then I write a poem like this. This is titled, Elections Each November. While our country becomes more politicized, simple science requiring religious faith, a great blue heron, gray-throated, feet tucked back, flies the river path above my head as I bike, going the same direction as me. Pues nada, mijo. I can hear the flex and click of its creaking wings. A five-pound bird that has hunted rivers and marshes on this continent for more than 60 million years. As a teacher, I get upset with an educational construct that I run up against all the time. The United States grading system. A through F. Now there's natural illogic in the system, starting with the idea that there is no E. It's A, B, C, D, skip E, go to F. But also, the percentages associated with these is absurd. For example, a C is supposed to be average. But if we're talking about average, and maybe going between no understanding at all, 0%, and perfect understanding, 100%, then a C should be 50%. But instead, arbitrarily, we've decided that a C is 70% to 79.9%. Nobody really knows why. Why average would be 75th percentile. It's kind of odd. But that's how we set it up. Also, if you think about it this way, someone who understands half the material, who gets half of the questions right, who basically is in line with understanding half of whatever is being taught, that person earns an F. So if you understand half the material, you earn an F. 50% is an F. If you understand almost 60% of the material, say 58%,
you still earn an F. So if you understand 8% more than half, you earn an F. Total failure. But if you never go to class at all, if you never turn any assignments in, if you don't attempt anything, if you don't care at all, and you earn 0% for the entire class, you earn the exact same grade, an F, as someone who understands half the material and does half the material, 50%, or somebody who understands and does the material at a 58% level. So in our grading system, 58% is exactly the same as 0%. There's no difference at all. It's all F. And then, in the last decade, there's been a heavy push in public education to start going towards what's called proficiency grading. And proficiency grading means that there's standardized rubrics statewide for every student in whatever subject matter. And based on those rubrics, the students are assessed as either proficient or not proficient. Or if it's more nuanced, it's highly proficient, proficient, nearly proficient, and not proficient. Now, the problem with this grading system is this. Let's look at it as a percentage. If a student comes into my class, and he comes in from a background that has enabled him to understand 20% of the material, so on his own, at the start of the term, he would earn 20%. 20 out of 100, obviously an F. If by the end of the term, he understands 45% of the material, he's more than doubled his learning more than doubled his understanding, yet he's only at 45%, so he'd still earn an F. And in proficiency grading, he would simply earn not proficient at the start and not proficient at the end, and there would be no difference in his grades, and nothing would show that he had doubled his understanding. Also, if a student comes in, and this student is prepared educationally, familially, socially, economically, to understand 90% of the material and to be assessed at a 90% proficiency level, that person is going to be highly proficient at the start of the term, maybe do zero work, not increase this person's ability at all, not understand anything more, and then be reassessed at the end of the term and still be highly proficient. Maybe even this person went from 90% understanding and learning at the start of the term to 89% learning and understanding at the end of the term, yet this person would be considered highly proficient, even though this person had not worked, had not improved, had not done absolutely anything to show any interest in education. Yet, this person would earn the highest grade. And that is why we have a very, very weird assessment construct in U.S. public education. To be clear, you can't go outside at night and gaze in wonder at the stocks and bonds scattered across the sky. You can't pour a bowl of diamonds and milk and eat it in the morning. You can't pet your silver and smell between your silver's ears, and cuddle with your silver while you're reading a book. You can't drink a glass of political outsider, or carve a spear with a brick of gold, 
You can't write a future to your neighbor's house or light a digital bank statement on fire to stay warm. We are living in a strange world. We are collecting items that won't help us and valuing constructs that will never give us anything tangible in return. But community is real. Unconditional love is real. And in addition to my wild, creative, and varied family, I was lucky enough to have a family friend who also loved me unconditionally growing up. I was lucky enough to have her take me in, feed me food, give me a bed to sleep in, and hug me when I needed comforting. And for all of that, I'm eternally grateful. So this episode of the podcast, Lucky Episode 13, is dedicated to Priscilla Wilt, one of my other mothers. Thank you to her for so many things. And to all of my other friends, thank you again for listening to this episode of The Boring is a Swear Word Podcast. And my-